Good morning, gentlemen. We are studying Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, we began last week with Dan Burns, who now is on his missionary journey. He's actually uh, in uh, Kazakhstan as we speak. I think he's teaching right now at uh, 6 o'clock at night, uh, his students in Almaty, Kazakhstan. But uh, appreciate his teaching here last Thursday. And isn't it good to, if we're going to talk about Paul's first missionary journey, isn't, wasn't it nice to study with someone who's actually been a foreign missionary? and done an excellent job at it. We're going to pick up the story after Paul and Barnabas had been to Cyprus, and you saw why they went to Cyprus. Uh, likely because that was Barnabas' home. And let's, let's start with the people we know. And it's just like our mission. Uh, is this on? This is too loud. Uh, it's just like our mission. You start with those who are in your family. You start among your best friends. You start in your community. You have these concentric circles, but eventually you claim the whole world. And that's what we're going to see clearly in the book of Acts, because when we start with chapter 13 in particular, now we're seeing the fulfillment of Jesus' commandment to his disciples in Acts 1-8, where he says, you'll receive power and then you will become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. And now we're going to the ends of the earth. And we see that the Christian life and the life that uh, has taken in the gospel of Christ becomes a global life. There's no way around it. If you cut off part of the world, you've cut off part of the gospel in your heart. If you've received the gospel, you receive the gospel that belongs to the whole world. It's the very nature of the gospel that it belongs to the whole world. Paul says it like this. When he's writing the Romans, you can look at this in Romans chapter 1, he says he has an obligation to the Greeks. In other words, he's saying, I owe them something. I owe them the gospel. Now, we've spoken of this before. It's not because Paul created the gospel. It's not because Paul borrowed the gospel from them and has to return it. It's because God gave it to him and said, give it to the rest of the world. So Paul owes a debt to the rest of the world because he's holding something that the giver said, give this to to John and Bobby and Martha and Sue. So if someone gives you $10,000 and says, would you please give that to Sandy Wilson? I'd appreciate it if you'd give it to me. And God gives us the gospel and says, would you give this to the world? They'd appreciate it if you give it to them. Or sometimes they do appreciate it. Certainly God's people, the elect, appreciate it when you give it to them. So we're under obligation when we receive the gospel because it's not only for our transformation, which it is, but it's also for the transformation of the world through you. So just as we see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and the church in Antioch of Syria, when they get converted and they understand the gospel, they realize we've got to send our missionaries out. Now let me tell you something about the American church. Only 11% of American churches have anything in their financial budgets for international mission. 11%. Now, i tell you what that tells me. That tells me that 11% of our churches have some understanding of the gospel. Uh, We also know that only 4% of our churches in America would have what we would call an aggressive plan to engage international mission. So I would say... 4% 4% of our churches in America 
have really been deeply touched and affected by the gospel. Now, it's possible, it's possible, very unlikely, but possible that you could be engaged in an international gospel work and not be converted. That's possible, unlikely, but possible. What's not possible is that you could be a truly converted Christian and have no concern for the international uh, peoples of the world. So we've got a long way to go in our own hearts and uh, in our churches. And what we're going to see with the Apostle Paul, who tells Christians all over the world multiple times, imitate me. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. And we heard last week from, from Dan Burns, and I'm sure Dan would say, uh, well, we, we have to say it with real humility. It's almost embarrassing, but the Apostle Paul says, imitate me. Don't you have to say that to your children? They're imitating you whether you tell them to or not. So your life, the life you live is the best teaching weapon that you have. And you simply say to someone, come along and follow me. Well, let's look at our teacher last week, Dan Burns. But even more importantly, look at the teacher in the Bible, the Apostle Paul. What does he do? He's got a plan. He's got a plan to take his own personal life and resources and to engage them in gospel work. That's the big idea. That's what you're here for. If you're not engaged in that, gentlemen, really, you may as well just go on. There's no reason to be here. This life has no comparison uh, to the next life that's waiting for us after death. There's only one reason to be here, and that's to work the plan with people who are not yet saved by the gospel. So your whole, the whole reason to be here is to have a plan and to work it. That's what the Apostle Paul does. Now, he has three missionary journeys and a fourth final journey. Uh, this is his first one. And the, what we want to ask ourselves is, are you on journey? Are you now on a missionary journey? Something I like to ask our congregation at various times is, is this question. We need to ask ourselves, is your life your best answer to the Great Commission? Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. There's, there's your job description. So how are you doing? Every quarter, your business gives us a financial statement, shows us that bottom line. We can see the, the itemized line items. We can, we can see how you're doing on costs, and we see how you're doing on income, and we can see how you're netting out. How are you netting out on your mission in life? This is it. We're going to see it with the Apostle Paul, and we're going to see some important things about how we conduct that mission. So let's learn from the Apostle Paul. Let's learn from the early church. Let's pick up the story then with Acts 13, 13. Remember Paul and Barnabas had been to Cyprus? We've had our first convert who was not in the synagogue. Now, we've had Gentile converts before, but this seems to be the first one uh, who is not connected to a synagogue of any sort. And, and that was Sergius Paulus that you saw on the island uh, of Cyprus uh, last week. But now Paul is going to move north, and we may say, well, why, why is he going that direction from uh, the Isle of Cyprus to what we'd now call Turkey, uh, southeast Turkey? Well, the reason is that Cyprus was Barnabas's territory, and now we're going to Paul's territory. We're going to hit the people they know. They're going to start with the people they know. And that's how the mission begins. Well, let's take a look at it. Verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. 
But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, All right, let's stop right there. What we want to see in these first four verses is this. We must practice the gospel method. We must practice the gospel method. Paul often asks those in Philippi, Thessalonica, Galatians, is your life being lived in a manner worthy of the gospel? In Galatians, he saw some saw a fellow apostle and some others acting in a way that was unworthy of the gospel, and he confronted them. What is a life lived worthy of the gospel? It's a life where you have total engagement. You're beginning with your heart, your mind. You're going to study the world. You're going to study Memphis. You're going to study your friends. Any area where you have responsibility, you're going to try to do some intelligence gathering and learn something about it. One of the exciting things about being a Christian is that when you come to Christ, you get the whole world back. You may not have been interested in sub-Saharan Africa. You might not have been interested in Southeast Asia. You may have had no interest in India before. You may never have thought a thought about China. Well, you can't avoid China anymore. But there may be parts of the world that you just really weren't so interested in. But when you come to Christ, you get the whole world back. And all those geography lessons that you ignored in the seventh grade, all of a sudden, they become very relevant. Now geography and ethnography and cultural uh, anthropology become very important to you because you're a believer in Jesus Christ because he's going to take you uh, to places you never even thought about. So first of all, we give our minds and we study the world. And then we certainly give our prayers. And if if you need a method to pray, you can ask uh, uh, Dan Burns when he comes back to put you on the... Second Presbyterian World Missions prayer list, and you could get a prayer for every day for some missionary or some mission station in the world. We'll be glad to do that. Or you can look online under um, uh, World, uh, what am I trying to think of? I'm sorry? Thank you. Operation World. And uh, I get it. I just can't remember the name of it. It's tough getting old, you know what I mean? But Operation World, and every day they'll send you a, a prayer request for one of the countries in the world. Uh, there are ways to pray and to engage. Or you could just get Operation World and you get a, a six-page summary of one nation in the world that tells you the prayer points, what's going on in that part of the world, what the ethnic groups are, uh, what the language groups are, what the challenges are for the church, what percent evangelicals you have in all, all those countries. You can get all that data and begin praying for that nation. So you might want to get that book. It's not that expensive. You can order it in the bookmark, Operation World. So you can be informed about the world and you begin to pray about the world. It obviously involves your finances. Right now in America, among Christians, the average gift for anything outside your own personal concern is 2.5%. I thought the Bible said 10, but we give 2.5% in America. The wealthiest country in the history of the world gives 2.5% of their income to anything outside themselves. The median gift, by the way, is 0.67%. The only reason we have 2.5% is because some wealthy people are giving large gifts. But the median gift, the middle gift, is 0.67% of one's income to anything other than themselves. 
We're known as a very liberally giving country. We're actually a very stingy country, in my opinion, especially when you compare our performance with what the Bible tells us to do. And you compare our wealth with the poverty of the world, where the bottom half of the world is living on $2 a day or less. That's 50% of the world living on $2 a day or less. So we give our 2.5%. Now, of that 2.5%, 2% goes to anything overseas. Let's do a little multiplication. 2% times 2.5% is 5 ten thousandths. So on the average, 5 ten thousandths of your income is going to relieve three and a half billion people who live on less than $2 a day. One child every five seconds that dies of hunger. One child every five seconds who dies of a preventable disease. 40 million AIDS patients. 30 million people who are in the sex trade and 34 million refugees. Five ten thousandths of your income on the average is going to relieve all of that. So it definitely involves our money, doesn't it? And for some of us, at different times in our lives, it means we actually go physically to these places to serve. And some of us are gifted with the gift of language acquisition. Some of us are given the gift of cultural adaptation. And some of us don't feel like we're gifted, but we're compelled to go anyway. And so we take all of these assets that we have and we employ them in the world. That's what we're supposed to do. Let me just pause for a moment. Whenever we look at the realities of the world, uh, it, it kind of overwhelms us. And you say, well, what in the world can I do? Could I just suggest, if we just take, there's a book uh, written by Jeffrey Sachs, who, who's a, uh, he's not a Christian, but he's done some major work on Uh, looking at international poverty. He says that if the nations of the UN would give 2% of their GDP for relief of poverty, we could basically solve the problem. Now, he's an old line optimistic liberal. And what what those of us who are Christians know, all the money in the world is not going to solve poverty until you you solve the, the soul, the issues of the soul. But it's nice to hear some optimism from someone who's, who's not engaged in gospel ministry. Basically, financially, that's what's needed. So why don't you just start with this? Why don't you just start with 2% of your income going for international work in addition to your tithe? You ought to be tithing to your local church. It's 10% of your income. Why don't you add 2% to it? Sometimes you wonder, hey, okay, I'm tithing, so what now? Why don't you keep going? Uh, The wealthiest country in the history of the world shouldn't stop with the minimal gift of a tithe. Let's move on. So why don't you start with 2%? of your income annually being given to international work. If you don't know what good causes or what good organizations to give to, let me know. You can email me, and I'll put you on to some ideas. But you'll see that we must practice the gospel method. And the gospel method, the very nature of the gospel, takes us out to people who don't have the gospel. And let me tell you something else about poverty in the world. If I were to take a map and map out the poorest countries in the world, and I were to take another map and map out the least evangelized nations in the world. You with me? This map shows you the poorest countries in the world. This map shows you the least evangelized nations in the world. There would be a 97% overlap on those maps. So don't think that the gospel makes no difference in people's temporal lives. It makes a huge difference. And you've got to do both, word and deed. 
going at the same time. So whatever organizations you work with, go with people who integrate word and deed and who establish the Christian church and build the Christian church wherever they go. We'll get to that in a moment. Okay, first of all, in verse 13a, we go to unreached people. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Perga would be about eight miles inland, so they hiked up to Perga. And, of course, we know they're on their way to Pisidian Antioch eventually. But they go to unreached people. That's the reason they're going there. Now, in our world, there are 6.7 billion people or something along those lines. Of those 6.7 billion people, there are 16,350 ethno-linguistic groups. We call them people groups. And when Jesus says, uh, make disciples of all nations, he actually says, make disciples of all ethnoi or people, ethnic groups. And we believe that that's what he's talking about, an ethnic group that has its distinctive language. So the ethno-linguistic groups, 16,350. Now, of those 16,350, there are 5,000 of them that are totally unreached and unevangelized. And that represents one and a half billion people. We can see there's still a huge task to perform. We're getting better at it. That number has come down since I've been a Christian. When I, was a Christ, when I first became a Christian, I heard numbers around 10,000 of those groups that were unevangelized. We're down to five in just my experience as a Christian, which is only 35 years. So we're making tremendous progress, but we have a lot of work yet to be done. In the world, there are 6,909 languages, 6,909. And we only have 451 of them with the full Bible. Most of them have portions of the Bible. But there are fully 2,252 languages that have no shred of Scripture in them at all. We've got a lot of work to do. So, gentlemen, with all the progress of communications, with all the progress with our satellites, and world travel, we still have a long way to go. And we are going to go to unreached people. So we, of course, you evangelize your family, you evangelize your city, you evangelize your nation. But if you're a gospel person, you can't stop there. You go to unreached people. That's exactly what Paul is doing. Now, secondly, notice in verses 13b and 14a, you do it with or without your friends. It says here, John left them. Now, we're going to study more about this later, and we'll get Paul's view of John's leaving in Acts 15.38. Paul was not happy with John Mark leaving. Paul felt that John Mark had abandoned the mission. And the reason that Barnabas and he, Paul, come into great dispute is that Barnabas is defending Mark, John Mark, and Paul is saying, I'm not going to work with him anymore because this, this work is dangerous. And I, if I can't, somebody doesn't have my back, I can't have him on my team. And so John Mark's not traveling with me anymore. And Barnabas said, well, I think that people can change. You know, Barnabas is the encourager, isn't he? Barnabas says, well, I think he can change. And furthermore, he's my nephew. So you go on. And in the second missionary journey, Paul goes with Silas because he and Barnabas broke up over this. Now, we don't know exactly why John Mark left. Maybe he was just plumb worn out. Couldn't keep up with Paul and Barnabas. I doubt that. Maybe he was scandalized by what he saw with the conversion of Sergius Paulus. 
because Sergius Paulus was not a God-fearer. He hadn't been trained in the synagogue, and undoubtedly, when he became a Christian, he was not taught also how to be a good Jew and probably, well, surely was not circumcised. And that's a scandal to a Jew. John Mark, when he leaves them, where does he go? He goes back to Jerusalem, his hometown. You remember his mama, Mary, was the house in which they had been gathering for prayer. Maybe he got homesick, but he goes back to Jerusalem. When Paul finishes this journey, we're going to see in chapter 15, he has a fight on his hands in Jerusalem about the conversion of the Gentiles. Who would have informed those guys in Jerusalem about what Paul was doing in the first place? Mm-hmm. So you can see that Paul probably felt like a major betrayal was taking place here. Now, if you have a group of three and you're already fighting for your life and one of them leaves you, what's the natural thing you're going to do? Quit. And just say, we need to go back to Antioch of Syria and recruit a third party and let's start all over again. Gentlemen, this mission is too important. And when I tell you that only 4% of the churches in this country have an aggressive plan for international missions, some of you are thinking, well, doggone it. So here I am, 4% having to carry the weight of the 100% of the church. Where are these people? And we start complaining and bickering and moaning instead of saying, God, thank you for giving me a mind that can see what the gospel is all about. Thank you for putting me into this work. Thank you for giving me an object for my giving that's really meaningful. Thank you for putting these prayer assignments on my prayer list and engaging me in the international work. Thank you, Lord. We're going to go with or without other people. We're going to stay engaged in the international mission, whether anybody else in the materialistic, greedy North American church gets it or not. So with or without your friends, that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas did. We've got to do the same thing. Thirdly, Start with the church. Now, when they got there, we noticed they went, look at this, on the Sabbath day, isn't this perfect? And they went to the synagogue. So on Saturday, they went straight to the synagogue. Why? Because we always start with the church. Evangelize your own people. You've got people that are sitting in pews who do it because their mama did it and their grandmama did it, and they have no idea why they're there. And furthermore, the guy who's standing in the the pulpit with a black robe is not telling them anything that's really helping them get to know Jesus better. Evangelize your own people. Always go to the church. Paul goes to the synagogue. These are the people who claim to be the people of God, the people who claim to be saved by God, the people who embrace the the word of God and have the oracles of God, have the promises of God, and they're not converted because they don't know Jesus Christ. He goes straight to God's people. That's exactly where we start. Let's evangelize our churches first. And then let's move on beyond that. When we go into nations, there may be 2% Christians there. We'll start with the 2%. We'll connect with the church. We'll be sure they know the real gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll seek to revitalize that church and then through that church to reach the rest of the nation. That's the gospel method. You start with those whom God has gathered up physically in his physical external church. We know they're not all converted, but they're in the covenant community. You start with them. Jesus did. Jesus said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And then he sent his disciples out to reach the lost sheep of the world. And then when Paul goes, everywhere he goes, you'll notice he starts with a synagogue. If there's a synagogue there, he starts one. Now, when he goes to Europe, we'll see later on, he goes and all he has is Lydia. He doesn't even have 10 people to make up a synagogue. 
But whoever the little group is, that's where he's going to start. The little group that meets by the river for their uh, uh, Jewish ablutions and so on. But there's not enough even to have a synagogue. But he'll still start with them. That's our method. And then verse 16, D, we reach the lost. So we don't stop with the church. Now, and the reason I say this is, Paul says, men of Israel, and then look at this. This phrase is not attack on. It's not inconsequential. He says, men of Israel, and you who fear God. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles who come and stand around the outer perimeter and listen in. So he doesn't just address Israel. He doesn't just address the church. He says, church people and all you who are visiting today. And he intentionally addresses the loss. He's already starting to ripple out beyond that first concentric circle of family and friends and church. He's already starting to address them. So yes, we start with the church, but we don't end with the church. We end with all the corners of the world. He reaches the lost. And you know, this, we know why this is so important. Uh, uh, was it just last week that the British Airways flight takes off from Miami, heads toward London, Three o'clock in the morning, they get over the North Sea, and a lot of the passengers are asleep, but plenty of them heard this announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, I have to inform you that we'll be landing this plane on the ocean in just a few moments. And of course, as soon as that happened, all chaos broke out. And I mean, you're talking about 60 seconds, you know, probably before this thing lands on the ocean. And from 37,000 feet, folks, it ain't going to be like the Hudson River. This is not going to be a pleasant landing and nobody's going to survive. And then, of course, the stewardesses explained to everyone, oops, that was a mistake. (laughs) The pilot hit the wrong button. (laughs) Nobody died of a heart attack and there haven't been any suits I've heard about yet. But can you imagine those terrifying 30 seconds when you thought you were going down? Here's the question. If you were going down, you know, are you ready? If this world is going down, is it ready? It's not. And we must always live in the light of the ultimate judgment and the final things. And they're coming before you know it. I'm with people every month who get surprised by a turn in their physical health. Every month. And look, I'm not foolish. I'm over 60. I'm a candidate. Any moment. And if you're 35 and you think you're not a candidate, I lost plenty of friends at 35. We're all candidates. And this world is candidates. And so often we just anesthetize ourselves into thinking, you know, we just postpone that and get that out of our minds. Well, Paul never let it out of his mind. He was always seeking to reach the lost. And so he begins there. Now let's look, secondly, verses 17 through uh, this would be verses 17 through 41, not 14, obviously, that uh, we must proclaim the gospel message. So first of all, we must practice the gospel method. That is to work in these concentric circles and go to all the world and have a strategy for it, a plan, a personal plan for how you're going to engage all those important concentric circles in your life. This is your missionary journey. But secondly, we must proclaim the gospel message. Now let's read the text beginning with verse 17 or uh, with verse 16b. Men of Israel, he says, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. 
And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not, un, I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also It is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if... One tells it to you. Okay, here's the message. We need to study this message. This is Paul's first recorded sermon summary. There are several of them. This is the first one. And what's recorded here, and of course, it's excerpted. We don't have, uh, undoubtedly, we don't have the whole sermon. What Luke has done is to excerpt and give us the essence of that sermon. And Luke's doing it very intentionally to say... Here's the message that goes to the world. If you want to know how to share the gospel, look at the Apostle Paul. He says, imitate me. Let's share the gospel the way he shares the gospel. Let's look at a few elements of it. First of all, he shows that the gospel fulfills the Old Testament. The gospel fulfills the Old Testament. Paul is showing that Jesus Christ is not some second idea or afterthought on God's part. Jesus Christ's coming is what God had promised and intended from the very beginning and even from all eternity. And when God was making promises to Abraham and to Noah and to Moses and to David and to, through all the prophets, 
This is what God had in mind. This was the final solution, if you will. This was the fulfillment of everything God was promising to rescue sinners from eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the whole program. And Paul is clear to show that. This is not just a religion for Westerners. This is not just for a religion for those who didn't get the Old Testament or who are not Jewish. No, this is the Jewish religion. Do you hear this? Paul is saying to his fellow Jews, this is the Jewish religion. So if you have someone who says, I'm Jewish, you say, well, good. Then you must believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, no, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Well, you've missed the whole point of Jewish religion. It's not saving without the promises of God's deliverance. And the promise of his deliverance to the Jewish people is his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So he's saying to the Jews, this is the fulfillment of everything we've been waiting for. Here it is, the whole enchilada. Take it or leave it. If you leave it, you leave the promises of God. It's, you notice in this language, he's not saying, hey, we got this program for people with darker skin and noses like mine. And we got this program for all of the crazy Gentiles. No, there's one program. That's the one he promised from, from all of history. And this is the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ. So he's very clear. Of course, this is a Jewish audience. Now, when we get to Acts 17, we'll see his presentation to a Gentile audience, and it is somewhat different. He still would say that Jesus is the one promised in the Old Testament, but for sure when he's talking to people who say they believe the Bible, who have the Torah, who are the God's people from, from 2,000 years ago, uh, before this, he's going to say, he's going to show how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And you'll notice in this story that you get God's initiative. I've printed it down here for on your, on your paper. God chose our fathers. God made the people great. God destroyed seven nations. God gave them their land as inheritance and so on. Eight or nine times, God is taking the initiative. And that's what our salvation is. It's God taking the initiative to rescue a people who do not deserve it. And even now, Paul is going to the synagogue with Jewish people who had the Bible and continued to break it in their hearts and didn't deserve it. And he continues to bring them the good gifts of God. So the first thing that we see really clearly then is that the gospel fulfills the Old Testament. Secondly, verses 26 through 37, notice the gospel focuses on Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't say, let me tell you about the gospel. You know, we have... This great history all the way from Abraham and all of God's promises. And the good news I bring you today is that God's going to fulfill everything he promised to you in the Old Testament. Everybody gets really excited. Yeah, we're going to have our inheritance that he promised. We're going to be a great nation just like he promised. And we're going to be a light to the Gentiles. And God is going to work through us to save the rest of the world and to bring light and life and to bring shalom to the entire world to care for the poor, to minister to those who are victims of social unrest and social injustice. Now, all of that is true, but that's not what he said because I missed the heart and most of the churches in this country miss the heart. The heart is not about what you're becoming and what you're going to do. And it's not about some depersonalized kingdom that some depersonalized God is going to give his depersonalized people. 
No, it's very personal and it's about Jesus Christ. And there's the core of what the kingdom is about, the core of what the gospel is about, and the core of what the church is about. And why it is that we preachers miss it over and over again, I don't know, except for just rank unbelief and hardness of heart. But notice when Luke says to us, this is the gospel that Paul preached wherever he went. And when, I, when, when we were there with him, or when Barnabas was with him and reported on this, this is what we got uh, from uh, Antioch of Pisidia. Uh, now notice what he says about Jesus Christ. First of all, he was rejected. And this was predicted in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And John explains it in the first chapter of his gospel in the prologue. He says, He came into that which was his own, the Jewish people, and his own received him not. And Paul is saying to Jewish people whose relatives handed Jesus over to Pilate to be executed, he's saying that even our wicked behavior, and Paul could speak in in humble terms himself because he was persecuting the church as a Jewish man. He was persecuting Jesus Christ just as Caiaphas did. So Paul's not being self-righteous about it. He's just saying that we, who were supposed to be receiving our Messiah, we rejected him. And furthermore, if you want to know why that was, it's not because he wasn't the Messiah. If you think that the only way a Messiah is going to be proven is that God's people unanimously receive him, you got another thought coming. Check your Old Testament. He's to be rejected Psalm 22. He's to be rejected, Isaiah 53. And for sure as heck, you fulfilled what the prophet said about you. You destroyed him. You tried to put him to death. You did. You handed him over. So he was, first of all, rejected. Secondly, his cross. He was not only rejected, he was hung on a cross, which is a sign of cursing. We saw that in Deuteronomy, didn't we? If you hang someone on a tree, God curses him. Cursed, says Paul in Galatians, is anyone who is hung on a tree. So the hanging on a tree was a sign of divine cursing. So we not only rejected him and wanted him put to death, but we wanted him subject to God's curse. The other day I was driving to the airport and uh, for some reason I decided to take note of the billboards. I usually don't do that. Sorry if you're in the advertising business. I just normally don't notice them. Maybe it was because it was later in the morning when I happened to be going to the airport, so it was, the traffic wasn't as bad, and I was looking around. That's my excuse. You know, you got the heating and venting and air conditioning over here, and you got to get your radiator fixed over here. But then you had one from the uh, horseshoe, uh, uh, yeah, whatever, that said, that said, we turn gamblers into legends. I thought, yeah, I've seen the legends you take, man. You send your buses up here when the welfare checks hit our community, and you drive all through that, those neighborhoods, and you pick people up, take them down, rip them off for about three hours, and bring them back in your van and drop them off without their welfare checks. Those are the legends you create. I mean, I couldn't believe the numbers I saw of the billions of dollars that are taken out of the economy by these casinos. And, of course, people who are for them say, oh, look at the schools they build and the tax base they perform. You compare what they're contributing to what they're taking out of the economy, and you'll have about a 10 to 1 ratio. It's unbelievable. The foolishness of what... That wasn't my point. Anyway, I kept driving. 
That was just one billboard. You see what happened to me. I'm amazed I didn't have a wreck. But the next one said, uh, what is the meaning of the Quran? You just check that out when you go to the airports up here on the right. Uh, what is the Quran? You can get a free one. Uh, check this website, whyislam?com. So I got to the airport waiting for my plane. Whyislam.com. And I got this wrap. Uh, one of the many things you can get on here is a wrap. And, you know, anybody's going to do a wrap ought to have at least a good African-American doing a wrap, right? But this guy, this guy had a head thing on, and he was a Muslim, and he was doing, trying to do a wrap. Actually, I want to tell you, if you're into rapping, this guy would give you a good run for your money. He was, he was pretty good. And he, he in his rap, he, the title of it was, Why I Love Jesus. And basically, it would be a princess, Why I Love Jesus More Than You Do, Christians. And here's, he was saying that he loves Jesus as a prophet. And of course, they, they do receive Jesus as a prophet. And he says, and in one of his lines, he says, why would you worship the cross? He says, and I can't, I can't put it either in the rhythm or in the rhyme. I'm not going to even try. But basically, the message is this. If you murdered your mother with an axe, would you worship the axe? Good question. Why would you revere a cross by which someone that we highly esteem was unjustly executed? Why in the world would you boast about a cross? Well, obviously because of what the cross accomplished. It was a curse and it was a bloody, agonizing death. But what happened was Jesus stood in our place on that cross. We're the ones who deserve to be there. And the curse came on him instead of on you. And because he came under the bondage of that curse, you were set free from that curse. And there's no curse on you. He removed the curse from the God's people by taking all of our sin on the cross. That's the reason we boast about nothing, says the Apostle Paul, save the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And Paul said to the Corinthians, a wild and hairy bunch, he says to them, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's the answer for a wild and hairy bunch. You need to know Christ and him crucified. And when you, when you examine the messages of the Apostle Paul, you're going to find the cross there, front and center. So the cross. Thirdly, his resurrection. If we have no resurrection, the cross has no meaning. If we have no resurrection, we have no power in the church. If we have no resurrection, we have no hope. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that, if, that if we ignore the cross, if our hope is in this life only, I mean, if we ignore the resurrection, if our hope is in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if we think the benefits of the gospel or only for this life, we've missed the whole thing. We've missed the resurrection, which shows us the triumph over death, taking us into the next life. So when you look at the preaching of the Apostle Paul, you're going to find the cross, and you're going to find the empty tomb, the resurrection, and you're also going to find the ascension. But here, primarily the cross and the resurrection. Then fourthly, you'll find his witnesses. And Paul mentions this on several occasions. Certainly in 1 Corinthians 15, when he summarizes the gospel, he mentions this. And he says, basically, would you like to know that not only is this a theological, spiritual story, which is redemptive, 
But would you like to know that it's also rooted in time and space, rooted in things that actually happened in history, rooted in things that people saw with their own eyes and felt with their own hands? Well, let me tell you this. There were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And Paul mentions this on several occasions. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and he made himself known to the apostles. He said, last of all to me, who was untimely born. In other words, Paul says, I'm the least of all the apostles. I was the last one to see him with my own eyes. Of course, when Paul saw him with his own eyes, it was after the ascension, and it blinded Paul, at least temporarily, when he laid eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how glorious Christ is now. But all of the apostles were eyewitnesses of him. They were speaking of that which they saw. John says, we saw it with our eyes. We heard it with our ears. We felt it with our hands. And they are speaking of something they personally experienced. Now you can say, if you're a skeptic this morning, and I hope we have some skeptics here, but what's the good of a Bible study if you don't have some skeptics? I hope we have some. If you're skeptical about this, you could say, it's possible that the apostles were deluded. It's possible. You could even say what seems impossible to me, that they were all deluded. What you can't say responsibly is that there's any possibility that they knew they were deluded. At the least, what you have to admit is that 12 men believe with all their hearts to the point of death. They're willing to die for it. They saw him. And they went all over the world, some of them in very lonely places at lonely times in their lives when we would all be tempted to recant. None of them recanted. They saw what they saw, they heard what they heard, and they touched what they touched. And to say otherwise would be a total lie. Now, Paul makes that clear in his preaching. Now, you and I are witnesses too. I have seen and heard things that have changed my life. I've heard the gospel. I've seen its effect in the human life. I know what the gospel's done for me. I have certain things I can talk about by personal testimony. But the Jesus story is handed down to me from reliable witnesses. And of course, God the Holy Spirit has inspired this entire thing. He has preserved the true story, but it is a historical, personal story. And there were witnesses to it and We're even told in the scriptures there were 500 of them. And if you're a reporter for the Jerusalem Gazette, you have plenty of people you can talk to if you're looking for the truth. And then lastly, his validation. In verses 32 through 37, we see that that Jesus, uh, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus. And he quotes several passages. And basically what Paul is preaching is saying Everything that happened to Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection was predicted by the Bible. So Jesus is validated by the very Bible you have in your laps or that your, your rabbi is reading today. In fact, they had just read a text from the, the law of Moses and they read a text from the prophets. Some suspect what those texts were. Deuteronomy 1 and Isaiah 1, I don't know for sure. We don't know what the texts were. But Paul undoubtedly goes to those very texts that were read that day and says, let me show you in that text how Jesus fulfills that text. Didn't we do that in Deuteronomy? Wasn't one of our main goals to find Jesus Christ as he is in Deuteronomy? And we did, didn't we? That's exactly what the Apostle Paul did throughout 
uh, Asia and Europe. He went synagogue to synagogue teaching the Bible that was, that was right in front of them and showing them what it really meant, contrary to what some of their rabbis had said. Now, lastly, uh, well, I'm sorry, thirdly, notice that not only does the, uh, the gospel fulfill the Old Testament and focus on Jesus Christ, but it forces consequences. The choice here is stark, as John Stott says. For believers, justification. And here Paul says, you cannot be justified from your religion. Oops, it's going to get him in trouble. If I'm speaking to a Hindu group, eventually I need to show my Hindu friends how their Hinduism is not going to justify them before a holy God. And I need to know Hinduism well enough to show them that. If I'm speaking to a Buddhist, and of course I've done all these things, show a Buddhist how in the Buddhist religion it provides no justification for facing a holy God. If I'm talking to a Jewish person, I need to show them how their religion provides no justification before a holy God. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. The law of Moses that you think is the creme de la creme provides no justification for you. And justification is simply being found righteous and declared righteous by God. And what Paul says, if all you have is the law of Moses, that law will just condemn you. It'll just show you all your mistakes and faults and sins. How's that going to justify you? That's going to get you in more trouble. What you need is an atonement, something that provides forgiveness for all those sins against the law of Moses. And only the blood of Christ shed for you provides the sacrifice that allows God's justice to be satisfied against your sin. God's justice must be satisfied. It will either be satisfied by your destruction and you'll pay the penalty for your own sin or it will be satisfied by somebody else paying that price and that's what the cross was all about. So in the gospel, we present what Jesus did in the crucifixion and resurrection and then we show what difference it makes. If you believe in him, that cross work frees you from the condemnation of the law. And then he says, but for those who scoff, look, they're facing death. And this is the choice. This is why the gospel must go everywhere, brothers. Lastly, we must possess the gospel mentality. We're not going to have time to read the text. Let me just give you the four points. First of all, we teach the converted. We teach the converted. Now, Paul had people begging him to tell them more. Folks, there are some people, a minority that know enough about the Bible right now and they've heard something about the gospel, they're begging us to come teach them. How can we turn them down? How can we do that? But we are. There are people begging for teachers and trainers right now. And you notice that we teach the converted. Secondly, we warn the contentious. There were those who were jealous because Paul was becoming popular and he was promoting another religion and not their religion. And he warns them. And so you don't just turn your back on these people. You give them a respectful warning. When I had a Jehovah's Witness enter my home uh, some time ago, we talked about the Bible and about Jesus Christ and the problems that were in Jehovah's Witness religion. And then they, they said that they were going to stick with their religion. Before they left, I said, let me give you a warning. And I gave them a warning. If they persevere in that lifestyle, they're in deep trouble. And I told them that my door is always open. I welcome them back anytime. Thirdly, we implore the curious. So the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. You see, Paul goes to the Gentiles. They're thrilled. And he implores whoever will come. So your best friend won't come to Christ. 
Somebody in your foursome won't come to Christ? Well, you can play in that foursome, but get yourself another foursome where you have somebody who might be interested in the gospel. You play tennis with a partner? Fine, enjoy your partner, but find somebody else to play tennis with too that might provide an open door for you to share the gospel. And here's why. Your whole life is about taking the gospel to a lost world. That's your whole life. What are you doing? Doing anything in life that has nothing to do with the gospel. Everything has to be integrated around the gospel. Lastly, notice we scorn the shame. But the Jews incited and stirred up the persecution, drove them out. Look what they did. They shook off the dust from their feet as Jesus told them to in Luke chapter 9. And the disciples were what? Filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. When the worst comes upon you because you are giving to world missions or the worst comes upon you because you're sharing the gospel with someone who scorns you. Gentlemen, when you leave that meeting or when you leave that disaster or when you are facing that persecution, let your heart rise up and rejoice. Why? Because the prophets were persecuted before you and because you are now named among the prophets and because you now are identified with Jesus Christ. The apostle says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Why did Paul celebrate? Because he was identifying with the Savior that he loved. And it was through the sufferings of the gospel that he got to know Jesus even better. So even with the pain and agony that may come from time to time from the persecuting in the world, our hearts are lifted up by the Holy Spirit always to rejoice because we know what the cross and the resurrection has accomplished for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this missionary journey and for the journey that every one of these brothers is on. And I pray that you'll inspire them for their journey today and in the days to come. Help us to be very intentional about how we spend our lives and help us to spend them for the sake of your glory. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Bless you.